HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are going to be talking coffee with Todd Casperson, who's the Director of Purchasing for Equal Exchange. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I, I want to jump right in, um, but I, I figured that we might give our listeners a little bit of a sense of, of who you are. And so I thought you could share a little bit of your background um, and the things you did to prepare you for your role at Equal Exchange. Okay, great. Um, well, I grew up in the Midwest, which is a, I grew up actually in Minneapolis, but the rest of the Midwest is a fairly agriculturally based area. And I went to school at the University of Wisconsin and studied agriculture. Um, after I did that, I was in the Peace Corps abroad for three years, and which really got me going on tropical agriculture um, and the issues associated with it, um, not just coffee, but all kinds of tropical production. And after that, I came back to the U.S. and found myself working in the strawberry raspberry fields of California's central coast, working for the United Farm Workers as a labor union organizer. And then from there, I lucked out and got a job at Equal Exchange. Nice. And how long have you been with Equal Exchange? 14 years. So you're well situated to kind of share some of the organization's history. I know they just celebrated, what, their 25th anniversary? Uh, I think we're going for 26 or 7 this May. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Well, now I know, so Equal Exchange, their mission is to build long-term trade partnerships that are economically just and environmentally sound. You guys are looking to foster mutually beneficial relationships between farmers, consumers, um, and, you know, really to demonstrate that this model uh, of uh, equal exchange uh, of fair trade works. And I know that you have um, some folks from your team have been a guest of the network before, and we've talked a little bit about fair trade in the cacao world. But I wonder, you know, how is fair trade different when we're looking at coffee? Than the cacao world? Yeah. Um, well, it's bigger. 
<laughs> the cacao is still um, the, the amount of um, engagement or acceptance by the industry is, is, is much less than it has been in the coffee world. Coffee is still far, in a way, the largest fairly traded product. I think it's followed by, by bananas. And then maybe cacao is a third. So it's quite a bit uh, larger world. And um, now we have uh, a lot of uh, different type of actors engaged in the, I guess what we'll just call fair trade in parentheses, um, world. Um, multinationals all the way down to your local mom and pop roaster. You don't really have that in cacao. You have a very small amount of engagement by some of the multinationals, but most of the fair trade cacao that's happening in the world today is really done by um, more smaller independent actors. I would say that would be probably the main difference. And can you talk a little bit about um, you know fair trade and, and equal exchange? I know that your organization in many ways have been pioneers of the fair trade movement. Um, but are there distinctions that you make for you know higher barriers to entry for working with equal exchange that are above and beyond the fair trade certification, or do you kind of toe the line and look to move the fair trade um, requirements forward with your organization? Um, if I, for you're talking about the in terms of engagement with producers, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say that we have perhaps, you know, yeah, higher barriers to entry than, you know, your, what you might call mainstream fair trade um, or larger scale uh, sort of traditional coffee actors who view the fair trade, uh, who view fair trade as part of a, as a more of a niche in their whole business. It's not their business. It's just a small portion of their business. And so they're just taking the fair trade that comes out of the box, as it were, whereas we're really more uh, looking for organizations, um, co-ops, and, and, and what organizations co-op I use interchangeably, um, that are actually doing stuff sort of above and beyond the, the, the physical trade and processing of coffee that are engaged in their communities and their regions um, in ways, in, in proactive development ways, which isn't really a requisite of being fair trade. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to chat about today was, uh, you know, how fair trade works to promote a higher quality coffee. I think that are, there is some criticism that fair trade, if, you know, focus exclusively on the relationship with the producers and ha is not a quality, uh, you know, a quality demarcator. Um, and I'm wondering how you would respond to that. Um, I would say that quality is dependent upon work with producers, regardless of what certifications you put on it. That's been a long drumbeat, you know, ever since I've been in the coffee world. Oh, fair trade doesn't provide quality. Well, no kind of certification that exists today actually is a quality demarcator. So really it's up to individual companies, uh, co-ops, to develop that type of relationship. You can have fair trade coffee that is what you might call a commercial-grade coffee, and you can have fair trade coffee that's a very super high quality. So... It, it's both, it can be both things, and it's not a prerequisite one way or the other. So it's really about the individual actors in the, in the supply chain, and whether they're looking for higher quality coffee or not. And if they're not, you can go, there's plenty of you know, bad coffee that's commercial. There's plenty of bad coffee that's fair trade. Um, but I would argue that at least the initial actors, or the, what I call the traditional actors in the fair trade system, because of their relationship with, uh, with farmers and the direct contact with you have, that is the way that you develop higher quality coffees if that's one of your goals. 
And and as far as for equal equal exchange specifically, um, obviously equality is important to to kind of building your brand and, and being an ambassador for the fair trade movement. Um, how does that kind of work into? Can you tell us a little bit about like the 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 quality control processes in the coffee world for you know specific to equal exchange? <clears throat> Absolutely, um, that's actually been the focus of most of um, equal exchange's work. Uh, in the, on the ground at Origin over the last 10 years. Um, I've been engaged in the coffee buying aspect of, of Equal Exchange since 2001. Um, before that, I was a salesperson. But that was one of the very first initiatives that we started to work on was to improve quality, to um, develop common, common language with our partners on the ground so that when we find a quality problem or when we find something that we find particularly desirable, some citric notes or floral notes or, you know, different types of descriptors or, or, or characteristics that we find in the coffee. How do you explain that to your partners abroad? Do they have people that can understand what you're saying? Do you share a language that you can communicate either the bad or the good so that you can act on those two things, either get more of the good or somehow eliminate the bad? And so we've spent, I would say, the, the majority, you know, a lot of the last 10 years um, trying to develop this common vocabulary with our producer partners, and what that really in, uh, what that really entails is uh, working with and training their quality control personnel in the processing plants abroad. So we, when we go, uh, we spend a lot of time with those people calibrating our pallets, calibrating our um, our protocol for sensory analysis, so that because we can't be there all the time, we're there you know once a year, twice a year, whatever. Uh, if you were not, and which isn't enough to really improve quality over time. And so what we've been working with in each area is to have someone there that we know and trust and that they know us and trust us, and we can communicate back and forth and try to harvest to harvest, uh, talk about what we found and talk about solutions or, or positive aspects and continue to encourage and develop those aspects. Um, an example of, of this type of work actually is coming right up and um, right before the Specialty Coffee Association of America meeting, which is going to be in Boston in April, we're bringing um, quality control personnel, which we call cuppers, um, from Uganda, Colombia, Nicaragua, and Peru to our offices for a week of um, exchange around sensory activities and calibration. And additionally, we're going to bring some of our, um, our clients and their their baristas and their quality control people here to have an interaction and a sharing with those same people so that we're actually having the whole chain communicating about quality and what they find. Because prior to, I would say, 2000, you know, it was sort of a watershed moment in the coffee world where uh, cupping and cupping protocol really began to expand rapidly. Prior to that, you would go to a lot of mills and you would find some amount of sensory analysis, but a lot of it was much more physical analysis, how many defects, but the amount of cupping that was actually going on and the amount of adequate cupping that was going on um, on small farms and in cooperatives uh, wasn't that much. But right around 2000, there was sort of an explosion that happened. And now today you'll find cuppers in almost any, you know, any, any co-op that's been around for a while now will have cuppers, and those cuppers are a central part of their commercial operations, whereas before it was sort of the you know, lab coat quality control guy in the mill that maybe didn't have any communication or relationship with their commercial manager. So that's really been the focus of, of a lot of our work at Origin is figuring out ways to develop quality in these different supply chains that are really are, are quite long um, from remote village communities all the way to us and all of the steps along the way 
and you have to slowly work on each single step from individual farms to group collection systems to group processing systems to final export. So it's, it's been something that we've been working on for a, a quite a long time, actually. It sounds like you definitely keep busy. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the, the language aspect of things. I think often it's like, I know it's hard for me to kind of wrap my head around um, the, the global market, even if I'm looking at a specific crop and, and how do you kind of work across the uh, cultural differences, the language differences. You know, I'm curious about the preferred modes of communication, whether it's predominantly, you know, email or phone in addition to kind of annual or biannual site visits. I mean, can you talk a little bit of the challenges in your position uh, of having to kind of communicate not only a lot of, you know, complex information across the long chain, but also like the physical distance and the language barriers? Sure. It's, you know, <laughs> there. It, it depends on, on where you are and there'll be more or less of those types of language barriers. But, you know, some of the fundamental barriers, when, especially when you get down to the farm level, are, um, are that the people who are actually growing the coffee frequently don't drink coffee. And so they don't even, you know, that's not a product that they're consuming or the product that they're consuming is the byproduct of the quality process. So they're taking all the inferior product and that's what they drink locally or drink at their own homes. And all of the export grade goes away because it's worth quite a bit more. So they actually have no primary experience at all with quality coffee. So one of the first barriers is just to get farmers to taste coffee and, and get them to understand, well, there actually really is a huge difference between this type of coffee that was prepared this way and this type of coffee that was prepared that way. And that can be done much better just by sitting down with them and preparing two types of coffee and saying, look, this is how that is, and not even using... Um, you know, not through verbal type of stuff, but rather through sensory experiences. I think that has a lot more impact. So we do that at the farm level, and we also do that at other levels further up the chain. Um, some of the, you know, interesting, um, you know, I'm, to be very honest, some of the really interesting complex uh, problems that you encounter in this is, is that the movement of quality control and sensory analysis out of the mill and into the commercial operation um, where you have sometimes generational differences. A lot of people who are actually at cuppers end up being young women. And so then you, you're introducing young women into a commercial relationship that might be controlled by an older generation of men. And so you, you, there's a lot of gender dynamics that go on as, as well as a lot of power dynamics. And so if you're saying, oh, out in the mill they said this, and the commercial manager isn't, doesn't value the work that's done out there, um, that can be a big barrier. And so, we, we, you know, we're always working on that. We're always trying to elevate the, the importance of, of what's happening in the cupping labs, which are located in mills most of the time. Um, and so that's another big barrier that we see. There is, you know, just the basic uh, communication barrier when you're dealing with indigenous groups and folks whose primary languages um, we don't speak. We, our staff speak Spanish. We don't speak Quechua, Mara, Mayan languages, uh, Ligusu. So you have just basic uh, language barriers that can be difficult to, um, to overcome, but we do that through sensory exercise um, with the folks that we can't communicate directly with. In terms of how the communication is done, it's both done um, through sort of a workshop format um, where we go and visit or we send people to go and visit and do sensory exercises. We also bring them to the United States. And we also are constantly, every shipment of coffee that comes to us, there's quite a bit of back and forth about 
what we're buying, what happened when it got here, how it tasted. Um, every year when we meet with them to discuss future contracts and future volumes, we go through the, you know, what happened last year, how many lots were in compliance, how many were out, why was that so, how can we improve that, um, try to increase resolution down to the you know, specific exact farmer level on every single uh, container load of coffee, which is frequently full of many farmers. Um, so there's <laughs> a myriad of problems, but we, so we try to communicate both in, in face-to-face, in person, in non-language ways. We also, just by giving constant feedback, in the same way that we have a feedback loop between our quality control lab here and our roastery with our roasters, they're having a feedback loop going, oh, this roast tastes like that, this roast tastes like that, it was the same bean, what did you guys do differently, or roast it this way, not that way. So those feedback loops um, that are done through email, through visits, um, are really the basis of, of the quality development program. Wow, you know, it's so fascinating to kind of get a little bit of a window into the backstory of a product that it has like an almost like magical appearance in our day-to-day lives here. And I think it's like not often that I, I sip my coffee and think about all of the um, things that have happened, all the players that have, have like made it possible to to come to my cup. We are... We're going to take a, a short break, and when we come back, I really want to tuck into things from the farmer perspective and talk a little bit about working with you guys um, as, as a producer, as a ground line producer. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Hey. You're listening to Third Degree Rug Burns by Tackstar on heritageradionetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. For more information, visit Cane5.com. All right, we're back. You are tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Todd Casperson of Equal Exchange. We're talking coffee. So, Todd, kind of getting back to uh, the farmer's perspective, because we are on The Farm Report, um, I'm wondering if you can take us through how um, a new producer, a new farmer would enter the network that would eventually lead to their beans being found in an equal exchange uh, bag of coffee? Hmm. There's a lot of different... <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, there's no standard way that that happens. Um, <clears throat> some, it has to do with what we perceive to be our market demand and if we have the offering um, that meets that demand. And if we don't, um, we go out and look for new groups um, that that present different types of characteristics that we're interested in. Um, one of those being quality, another one being um, co- uh, cooperative organization. You know, is it a strong organization? Is it a new organization? The level of sophistication, um, the level of capitalization, uh, the amount of infrastructure, processing infrastructure particularly that they would have, uh, the potential, if 
if the quality doesn't exist today, the potential for quality in two or three harvests given a certain set of um, interventions and processing. Um, so from their perspective, it would, you, it's, I, mean, I guess it would be hard for me to speak from their perspective. It's hard to get into this kind of a supply chain because um, there's not that many people that buy the coffee in the same way that we do. Um, most of the fair trade coffee that gets imported into the United States um, actually gets done through uh, importers and brokers and then sold to the roastery. There's not very many people that are actually importing and roasting their own coffee. So if you want to sell directly to a, a roaster, which is what many, many farmers aspire to, you have to figure out how to come in contact with them. You have to um, be able to present a reasonable amount of um, quality and information about your, about your farm and your neighbors that you might be working with. Um, it's a complex process. There are other times when we specifically um, are interested in an area or a region because we don't have... Um, we don't have that offering, or we or we want to find some other flavor profile um, that we're that we're lacking, or we're really interested in the uh, sort of socio-political historical context of that area. So most of the new producer partners that we are engaging with right now is in Africa, and a good example of that is the work that we're doing in the Congo right now, um, because of the context there, and because we're interested in uh, working with and promoting. Uh, sustainable coffee production in the Great Lakes region. So I, you know, it sounds interesting that like people within your network that you provide um, support as they, you know, where they may be strong in one component of the organization that that you also um, provide support and guidance as they transition to be stronger kind of across the board. And essentially, I think the idea behind fair trade to my understanding anyway, is that it increases, you know, stability for farmers, um, you know, communication, um, and I'm curious, you know, for a producer that you're currently working with, what happens, you know, when something goes wrong? You know, if you you have this ongoing agreement, um, you have these open lines of communication, but then you have a lot that comes out that's just, you know, not up to grade. Where does that kind of leave, where, where does it leave the farmer in the equation if you're their primary outlet, um, but the the for whatever reason, something gets messed up, um, what, what happens then? Um, different things depending on the organization, the cause of the issue. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, things don't always go according to plan, that's for sure. When you try to buy coffee from the Congo, it has to go to Uganda and then all the way across Kenya to Mombasa and then up through the Suez Canal and across, and that's a long journey, and so bad things can happen to the coffee there. Um, bad things can happen to the pri at primary processing. So um, one of the, we try to communicate, when something goes wrong, A, we give imme try to give immediate feedback, well, hey, this was a problem, what happened, and try to get to a common understanding of what the issue was. Um, and in some cases, we'll just say, well, you know, bad luck. In other cases, we will renegotiate the price of the product. Um, in some cases, depending on the, uh, the sort of organizational strength and resilience of the organization, we will reject the product. And knowing that they have other product for us and they'll have to find a different channel for that. It's one thing if you're dealing with a group of farmers that are only going to give you 100 bags and those 100 bags get messed up and that's it and there's no more coffee at all. If you're dealing with an export-level co-op that has, say, three or 4,000 farmers and they're dealing with, say, 50 or 60 containers, 
they have more capacity to shift that into a different sales channel. Um, so it really depends on who who you're dealing with and their capacity to deal with those um, with the negative consequences of bad quality. In in the case where it's re- we you know we're not drastic like okay it's over. However, we don't you know I have to stay in business too. I have you know there's 120 families at Equal Exchange and we need to have a viable business and that depends on quality. If that behavior or problem continues to repeat over time, we eventually reduce volumes. And if it keeps going, then we go down to zero. But we, the whole idea is this feedback loops that I was discussing and what happened and why and whose fault was it and what can we do? Is there some way to fix it and who should fix it and how and who should fund that fixing? It's complicated. It's a, it's a negotiated solution. Yeah, no, and I think like there's a certain amount where the the market will kind of exercise some discipline in promoting quality, but I think you know there's a real need for um, for people for for the market to be able to absorb things across the quality spectrum, mm-hmm. um, and and having channels that will absorb things that you know aren't the right fit for a, ni- a niche producer like yourself. And do you generally find you know within uh, you know, producer specific or within co-ops that um, I'm like, what is the kind of expected level of consistency from, from crop to crop? I mean, as far as the, when we were looking at from a quality and a, and a volume, um, does that hold pretty steady, like barring any kind of significant weather events um, or how, like what, what's the, um, what would be the time period of a, of a, a shift up or a shift down? You know, it, <clears throat> time frames in agriculture are long. <laughs> so, f- for example, just going back to the Congo, we entered into the Congo knowing that the quality was not there in the first go. Um, and we do have, we're lucky to have some channels that we can sort of channel some of that lower grade product into. Um, n- not very much, but we can absorb some amount of that and, and sell it in a way that helps us to then get to that next level. You would hope to see improvements over time within the first two or three cycles, hopefully by the second harvest season and then the third, and then continual improvement, essentially, um, from there on. And not just, you know, there's, there's intrinsic sensorial quality, and then there's all the other quality attributes that we assign to it, where it came from, um, what, how it was produced, and what type of a system, which don't necessarily uh, show up right in the cup, but they are qualities of that of that lot. Um, and so we seek to have those qualities increase as well as the sort of intrinsic sensorial qualities, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. And then if things, you know, if things continue to deteriorate in terms of, you know, one of the big fears I have in talking about quality and, and what's going to happen over time, there, if, you've been, if you've been listening to the news from Central America, there's a rust uh, disease ep- epidemic just raging across Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, reaching up into Mexico. Um, I've just received reports that it's also in Peru. And one of the ways to combat that is to plant uh, disease-resistant varieties. And a lot of those disease-resistant varieties have um, have genes from the Robusta type mm-hmm. of coffee, and that does not have good cup qualities. And so one of the things that we're afraid of is that the response to rust is going to be planting of these rust-resistant varieties, which will lower the quality of coffee across the board. Um, so it's, it, it, it's a matter of years, I would say, the, the time frames that you're dealing with in trying to increase, uh, 
quality and then also watching quality decrease across the board is also something that happens over several cycles. There, uh, there's something so kind of just inst- strange. It's like insanely strange to me that I would be a farmer producing a crop that I that I that I don't consume. That I, you know, there's like this level of removal between you know what I spend my day doing and make my life um, from. And, you know, because you've got to spend time with producers in different parts of the world, I mean, I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit of, you know, your sense of how, how they, they see themselves and, and the fact that they produce coffee. I mean, it's a little bit of a strange question, but I, I think to me it, it makes sense if I'm, if I'm growing something as a producer that I can eat or that I consume or, is, you know, kind of culturally consumed in my region, but... You know, you did mention that one of the challenges is often folks don't even drink coffee. And that's just, that sounds so crazy to me. I'm like, why, you know, why is that? Have we, or has the market kind of imposed uh, production on areas where it's non-native? Or can you just suss that out a little bit for us? Sure. Um, You know, I don't want to give the impression that they don't drink coffee at all. There are, you know, just half the people in the world try coffee and half the people don't, and that's true in coffee-growing countries as well. There are countries where coffee consumption is, you know, saturated in the local culture. Ethiopia is probably one of the largest standout examples, and Brazil actually has been successful in increasing its own domestic consumption. But really what it is, it's, it's a market question for them. So if you're, you know, a farmer here in New England and you grow a bunch of really nice tomatoes, and that's your only source of, in- source of income, you're going to try to sell every single saleable tomato and not eat them. Because right. you, you know, I mean, I guess you could try to can them if that was your goal, but you're not going to, they can't eat coffee, so they can't store it. So their goal is to get money from it, not sustenance. So you're going to sell every exportable pound that you can. So in those countries, because of market forces, the product just doesn't stay in the country. So you, you just don't have that. The raw material doesn't even exist, nor do the systems to process it to a quality level. If you, you know, they do now, and you are having some change, but you know, they're dealing with, um, let's say, lower-quality roasting industry, um, an industry that's used to using lower-quality product that hasn't sought to sell product, sell coffee as a quality beverage. For a long time, even in the United States, you know, for many years, coffee quality was declining, and so wasn't consumption because the roasters were not seeking to provide a higher quality. They were trying to compete with Coke or, you know, whatever. And so only in the last 15 years, maybe 20 years, has the roasting industry thought, hey, we can differentiate, you know, and sell coffee for 20 bucks a pound and 450 right? So, which is something exciting. It's becoming more like wine. You can, you can select in those price ranges And that hasn't really, I wouldn't think it hasn't gone into coffee communities. They don't have the materials and their their industry isn't oriented in that way. There is places where that's changing, but I would say generally that's the way it is. And I agree, it seems, (laughs) I can't imagine growing something and not using it myself. Um, So, you know, we are just about out of time, and I know if folks want to follow more of the work that you do at Equal Exchange, they can visit you at www.equalexchange.com co-op and and um, also you can take a look at www.smallfarmersbigchange.coop um, but you know we covered 
kind of a broad range of topics today. And I want to thank you for doing such a wonderful job at really kind of breaking things down in what I think is a super digestible way. Um, you're dealing with a lot of big and complex issues and um, just getting a little bit of an entree um, for myself and for my listeners, I think is is really exciting and look forward to kind of having a chance to have you back and tuck into some of these things a little bit further. I did want to give you the opportunity be- before we um, sign off here. If there's, I- I'm just curious, you know, you know what the future holds or what you hope the the future holds. You know, if you let's say had a had a magic wand and and could, you know, or an unlimited budget and really, you know, what is there a thing that jumps out at you as um, having the the greatest impact on on the the biggest number of people or the most significant on a on a smaller group? I mean. What would you really love to see in the coming decade? What I personally would like to see and, and what I've determined that I'm going to try to do in the next 15 years or 20 years um, is it, it's a complex topic, but productivity in rural Latin America in the smallholder sector is low. And so there needs to be greater levels of research and investigation to increase productivity on those farms. Because just increasing price won't, won't change the, the economics of the whole area or of a whole group of farmers. They need to also increase the productivity of those farms. And the sort of extension systems, the agricultural extension systems that we're used to in the United States don't work or don't function um, or don't exist at all <laughs> in great portions of Latin America. Um, and these areas are critical forest habitat uh, uh, per- producers of environmental services for water production, carbon sequestration, forest conservation, habitat conservation. So if we don't really figure out how to make those areas more productive and therefore more, uh, more profitable for the people who are managing them, it's going to continue to sort of be a downward spiral of poverty and environmental destruction. And so for me, the key is really focusing on how to work with farmers and find new technologies and new practices that are going to take somebody who's making, you know, 10 hundredweight bags of coffee to 1,500 weight bags or 20 hundredweight bags. That, to me, is really, if I could devote all the resources of USEID or, you know, any of these other large funders, that's where we need to be focusing. And I think a lot of people are starting to look in that way, but that's, that's fundamental. I think it's so interesting, you know, with with carefully choosing your, your morning beverage, you can be having an impact not only on your own kind of sensory experience, but also supporting, you know, agriculture, uh, you know, gender equality, um, at, you know, economic um, in, improvement and empowerment. Uh, it's, a, it's a really exciting field to be working in. And Todd, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. Stay tuned in. Uh, We will continue our conversation with Equal Exchange. Next week, we'll be talking bananas. Uh, This has been another episode of The Farm Report. It, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available as a free download through iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. We are a member-supported network, and if you like what you hear, we hope you'll consider supporting us by clicking the Donate tab on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, 
or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.